Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. So welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today we have Ronald Rohde. He was on Global Investors Show in episode GI4, so if you want to look back and check that out. But he is uh, in Texas. He's an attorney that focuses on all aspects of residential and commercial real estate. Ron is also fluent in Mandarin Chinese and works with a number of U.S. and international investors. So thank you so much for being on the show again, Ron. Thanks, Charles. Good to catch up with you again. So I know we touched base on it, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, but can you give us a little background on yourself, both personally and professionally prior to your current law firm? Definitely, definitely. So personally, you know, I, I grew up in Texas. Um, my family has always invested in real estate. So we've held, you know, professional licenses. We've been landlords. We've done flips. We've done notes, uh, commercial office. Uh, we've really done it all. And, and from an early age, I was exposed to real estate and the benefits of being a landlord. Um, and I've, I've really embraced that. You know, I think I've taken my own career with, uh, with the law, but found my own niche, but still going back to what my parents instilled in me, and which is, you know, the benefits of, of passive investing in real estate and, and the strength of the market. Uh, fast forward to now, you know, I, I went to college in New York, went to Cornell, went to Florida, uh, where I am still licensed in the state of Florida, and went to the University of Miami, practiced for a few years, and then I've been in-house for a real estate developer doing ground-up new construction for multifamily and other senior living projects, um, a large uh, subdivisions as well. But uh, since then, I have my own practice where I focus on transactional real estate. So that means forming your LLCs, forming your entities, operating agreements between partners, uh, financing documents, PSAs, your purchase and sale agreements, as well as the maintenance or the operations of your project. So leasing, tenant notices, city violations, that sort of thing. And really, you know, I'm an investor's attorney that helps you maximize the return, which I know is so critical to all the investors. I, I am an investor myself, and I personally invest in industrial. I have a couple of warehouses here in DFW. Um, and so, you know, again, that's my, my background and my experience as an investor itself. You got to be able to make decisions. That's awesome. Yeah, industrial is such a great asset class. It's not something we really talk about too much, but... In Florida in general, which I know you know the market down here, we have such a lacking of industrial, especially cold storage, which is something yeah. new that's happening with all of these delivery companies. And you're getting food now delivered in hours and they have to store it somewhere. So it's 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 interesting how everything changes. But um, with what we focus on a lot of multifamily, I mean, it's if you're in these areas that are growing, it's as well exploding. So absolutely, absolutely. So I want to jump in. About half of our listeners are based outside the United States. Are you able to give us some background from an attorney's perspective of what a new foreign investor should consider before or when investing in U.S. real estate? Definitely. Um, I, I think as a foreign investor, it's important to understand how your goals differ the, from a U.S.-based investor. And what I mean is figuring out your own priorities and what makes a successful investment for you might be something different than local investors. So whether that's wealth preservation 
whether that's uh, obtaining U.S. dollars and you want to get cash flow, and, you know, accretive U.S. dollars as a hedge, a currency hedge. These are all vastly different goals than U.S.-based investors. And so once you understand yourself, you'll be able to go to a market and put criteria for your properties that are different and that suit your needs. And, you know, once you do that, I think that lends itself to direct CRE investment. Um, I think a, a majority of my international investors, they are somewhat experienced, maybe in their home country, but they want to take that step to direct ownership. Um, they'll have an LLC at the local level, but, uh, you know, my best advice is the, the biggest challenges for you are not the same challenges for U.S. investors. And so it's key to work with the right people that you can trust. And in the U.S., you know, lawyers, CPAs, we have a fiduciary duty. Um, we're not a, uh, you know, commission-based person. So like your, re your, your agents, your brokers, they're a little bit, they can be biased um, because they only get paid on commission. So they're going to want you to close the deal versus other service providers that aren't paid that way. Right. So what, what are usual concerns or obstacles that your clients who are foreign investors face when investing that they met, you know, they come to you and they asking you questions. What are those usually concerning? Yeah. Um, number one is probably money transfers. I mm -hmm. think depending on your country of origin, whether you are, um, you know, obviously you can't be an OFAC designated country, but um, there are definitely concerns about moving money, and usually they have to do with the foreign country restrictions on monetary movements. So it's not necessarily inbound U.S., but getting money out of China, Vietnam, um, Iraq, uh, you know, some of these net countries, they have currency controls. And so my clients will come to me and say, how can I solve this? Where can I move this money? And, you know, Kind of do like a daisy chain and and they say can i move this in time for closing um and then you know there was actually i just did a short youtube video on the new defense act had extra reporting requirements for all state registrations for llc's and this is just this is something completely new previously all of the llc and, and corporate entities are registered at the state level. There is no federal requirement, no federal registration and no penalties for failure to comply. Under this most recent defense bill that, um, that Trump you know, vetoed and then Congress overrode his veto, uh, they're gonna put in some anti-money laundering and reporting requirements, which are really gonna hit our international investors. They're gonna have this affirmative obligation to disclose a lot more information than they previously were. So, my advice for anybody listening now is create your LLCs now, I think before the reporting requirement kicks in, because you may have a lot harder time creating an entity in the US uh, in a couple of months once they come out with the regulations and they start rolling that out. Right. Yeah. And then in regards to the OFAC, just if people don't understand what that is, that's, uh, I believe it's Office of Financial Asset Control or something like that, wherein there's like uh, two dozen countries, I believe that's on that, that we cannot, there, there can't be any type of money exchanges or it's a huge hindrance, I guess you would consider yeah. it. Uh, yeah. I mean, you definitely can't have a transfer from a bank account in those countries directly to the US. So mm, that's, yeah. 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 Argentina is another one of those big countries that I hear from people that they can't, they have such a problem trying to get uh, even a few thousand dollars out of. So 
it's uh, it's definitely definitely important to uh, speak to someone that's a professional and I'll be able to uh, kind of walk you through that. So this is like, we're, we're in 2021 and uh, we've been into this, the United States has been into this COVID for like nearly a year right now. How has COVID affected real estate investors outside of eviction moratoriums, which is affecting, I think, everybody with multifamily real estate? Are there additional factors that need to be addressed or added to contracts or leases to protect, uh, protect investors? Uh, I would say absolutely. I mean, regardless of the initial reaction to it, what we have seen as a result happen is, is a real impact. And so beyond the individual sectors that have you know, lost tenants or lost the ability to host as many you know, visitors or, or guests, there are changes to the way that we structure the contract. We have um, COVID provisions, which are usually just extensions, but they also could be expanded or they are expanded into termination rights. And so I think buyers and, well, you know, buyers and sellers are accepting these clauses. And it's, what it's doing is kind of putting a little bit more uncertainty into every transaction because mm -hmm. buyers want that right and they're willing to pay for it in the sense that if they have to give more consideration to purchase a building and to have that clause in there to terminate, um, they're willing to pay for it. And so we're putting COVID in that says, if the state of California enacts a, an additional uh, ban on you know, bowling alleys, shutting down a bowling alley, then I could terminate this contract if I want. And it's really a difference in how it used to be that the contract was sacred and and once two parties entered into an agreement that they were mostly bound you know they they were going to forfeit their earnest money or they were going to close and that was really the only one of two outcomes but now covid introduces a bit more uncertainty or maybe you could say flexibility to allow the parties to terminate or to wiggle out of a contract if they if they get cold feet and so we're definitely spending a little bit more time negotiating the exact language of that COVID. Uh, for leasing, for example, we're definitely putting in rent abatements, possibly countered with rent uh, lease extensions. So what I mean by that is, let's say you have an office lease, and if they close your office and you're unable to access the premise by government order, not a voluntary thing, and not a decision by the building, but if there's a government forced shutdown and it extends for more than two weeks at a time, every day after those two weeks, you get a base rent uh, abatement for those days, countered with an extension of your termination date by an equal number of days. So it's kind of just deferring that rent to the back end of the lease. But that's a very popular clause that has worked with, say, office tenants. Um, because it's kind of a win-win for both parties. The tenant gets to avoid paying rent for some of the time period that they're unable to use it. And then the landlord gets to extend their lease um, so that their, their total lifespan of that tenant is longer. So that's just one example. And, and we're putting in unique clauses to suit every single buyer. I mean, whether it is the financing, whether it's the quality of the rent rolls, whether it's, um, you know, not really eviction, like you said, but um, all sorts of stuff. I have some on multifamily as well.
Okay. Interesting. Yeah. For office and retail, I believe those are going to be, those are where it's most important because those are going to be the hardest ones at this point to actually rent. So if you're able to rent it and you're able to put those, uh, those caveats in there for the, uh, the new, the new leaseholders, then they're able to, uh, have a little bit more, like you said, flexibility during their, their rental. Yeah. So we're definitely building in a little bit more flexibility, although the retail environment has been really interesting. It's kind of a, uh, a, a bimodal distribution because some of the shopping centers and the locations that were doing well before, they're still way in demand. And those landlords are not conceding anything at all. Even, you know, COVID, they don't, they don't even care. And then on the other hand, you have the, the weaker shopping centers that didn't have as desirable of a location or a build out. And they're really suffering and, and their tenants went under and, you know, 70% is dark now. So it's really interesting for me. It's not a blanket statement to say that all retail tenants have more power. Maybe that's true in the aggregate and true average, but I'll tell you, you know, I've tried negotiating with some landlords, even in COVID and they're like, no, we're not conceding anything. So. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard it go both ways when I'm reading articles on it and speaking to people in CRE. And uh, I've it's it, it's amazing how people, uh, well, I mean, uh, different companies in different stances and they are in different financial positions so right. they can make different decisions. But um, with smaller uh, residential deals, partnering is not really a priority. But uh, one, an investor wants to scale their business. Usually partnering becomes a requirement. Are you able to give us some advice or direction to an investor that's considering partnering to grow their real estate business? Yeah. Um, so when I assume you mean partner, you mean like a, an equity, a sweat equity, somebody kind of um, direct yes. partner, right? Not not just like a... Yeah, not a passive or general or a limited partner, but it would be someone such as a, another co, uh, like a joint venture they would have gotcha. or an operating co-operating partner. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's lots to watch out for. Um, I actually have a partnership checklist, so oh. I'm happy to share that link. Uh, it's free download. It's just uh, two pages. It talks about these items, but the, the key is to understand the rights, the responsibilities, and the obligations of each partner. I think the biggest conflicts that I see in my clients is one person will end up shouldering a lot more of the work to, to, achieve something that they think is a worthwhile goal. And then they kind of resent the other partner for not committing as much time. And so having a really clear understanding of what each partner is expected to do. So for example, I, you know, I'm going to handle legal, I'm going to handle all the lawyers and the accountants, hiring, firing bills, that's on me. That becomes very clear um, that they're responsible for hiring that person. And then you have another person whose job is acquisition and, and leasing. Their job is really to find the properties and to find tenants. Um, that kind of clear discussion, as opposed to having a structure where it says, okay, well, we need to hire a lawyer. We need to find tenants. You know, do you want to do it this time or do you want me to do it? It, it can cause a lot of ambiguity in terms of, you know, did you call that person back and, uh, so that, that's one example, a clear delineation of responsibilities. Another thing that I recommend is not doing a 50-50 split. Uh, I know that it sounds attractive, but it, it unnaturally creates a log jam. You know, it's 50-50 um, is equal, but 51-49 
is a lot cleaner from a legal perspective mm -hmm. because while the numbers work out nearly identical, you can even do you know 50.5 if you want and, and 49.5. Uh, at the end of the day, you know who is the main partner and that's that's the majority owner. And so let's say we really disagree on something. If you have a 50-50 partnership, you may have to look at some weird third third rail to, to find a solution. When you have this little bit of an offset, the 51% or majority owner, he can put his foot down and say, look, Charles, you're my friend. I really respect your opinion on this, but I'm the owner and we're going to go with this route. Um, and again, that decisiveness is really critical to building a business. You need to be able to make decisions in a timely and decisive manner without creating resentment. Because again, if I'm coming into a partnership with you, Charles, and I know I'm the 49% owner, I'm accepting that. I, I, I'm, I'm acknowledging that there may be some times when you have to pull rank, so to speak, and you say, look, I really respect you. You're my partner but we're going to do X. And I'm okay, I'm okay with that. I, you know, I, I, if I respect you and I, I understand your thought process, it's not going to be a horrible decision. Uh, obviously I shouldn't be partners with you. I think if, if I thought you were capable of horrible decisions, but um, that's one tip that really can, can make the decision disputes resolved a lot easier. Yeah, that's a great, I haven't heard that from other attorneys before. So uh, if you after just send me the link over for your checklist and I'll put it in the show notes. Um, what mistakes do you normally see real estate investors make uh, at some example or situations where clients have lost money in real estate? Um, so again, in, in this market, uh, especially in multifamily, let's say value add, class B workforce housing, it is probably the single most competitive sector. Um, they are doing a lot of creative things to get their their offers accepted and this is probably the only way that i've seen people lose money and it's not so much of losing money as a calculated gamble but you put earnest money that goes hard on day one uh, and that's a really attractive um, offer to a seller because even if somebody else is offering more per, per door there's a risk that they terminate at the last day of due diligence and they get their earnest money back and you as a seller have nothing to show for it except for you know a waste of your time and maybe some attorney's fees um, but if you have an offer that says look I'll, I'll pay you pretty close to the other guy's offer a little bit less but i'm going to put 50k hard so you get 50,000 no matter what once we sign the contract i i wire the money it's yours mm -hmm. that's that's very attractive to a lot of sellers so I don't know if I consider that losing money, but they have terminated contracts with the hard money on day one. Um, so that's one way. Uh, but, yeah. uh, you know, other mistakes, I would say that people trying to um, do it all in the first deal and trying to cover every single possible contingency, you know, your first couple deals in the U.S. or as, as a step up, they're not designed to make you your fortune or, or make a ton of money. Uh, I think your first couple deals, your first one or two are really to learn. They are designed so that you can complete the cycle, you can purchase, you can manage, you can lease, and then you can have a successful exit. But a successful exit for your first one or two projects is not to make a huge IRR or a huge return on equity. The success is if you complete it and you learn about the whole process and you know what not to do on your next deal. That's, that's probably the single biggest mistake is I have people 
multiple, multiple iterations of their pro forma and they spend so much time trying to make it perfect. Hmm. You know, perfection is the enemy of good. If you want a, uh, yeah. <laughs> a quip, that's a mistake. I say that's a mistake. You're trying to make too much on your first deal. Yeah. Some of our listeners have possibly never enlisted the services of a real estate attorney since they are new to investing. Can you tell us a little bit and discuss how a new investor should be prepared to make the initial calls most beneficial for both parties when they are enlisting the services of an attorney like yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the way to understand the role of the attorney in the U.S. is for a, a deal advisor. Uh, the biggest piece of advice that I have for my new investors is, look, I, I've seen a lot more deals. Personally, you know, I've invested in and exited a lot of deals, but then also I see a lot more deals just in my day-to-day. -day. I probably have, I don't know, six, five or six PSAs, um, you know, in my active files right now that I'm negotiating, that I'm working. And that, that includes like some large leases, but um, that's a lot of deal flow. And this is across all markets. This is multi, you know, mostly multifamily. This is industrial. Haven't done a ton of retail lately, um, but we are doing some. And that's my experience. That's the value. So what people should ask me is, am I approaching this legal structure correctly? Am I approaching the, the process or explain to me how, you know, sellers expect to receive the, the money, how they expect to hand over due diligence? Can I get, can I ask for, and can I receive this type of document or not? Um, that's, that's really what a real estate attorney is there. And then when you're making changes to your documents, I'm the one that's going to actually type it up in a way that reflects exactly what you mean. And I think that's maybe a difference than a broker. The broker will happily write up the contract, but they're plugging information into a form and where it gets hairy. And, and that's perfectly fine. You know, I, I have no problem. You know, brokers can, can fill out contracts all they want. What happens is when there's amendments, when there are additional clauses that the broker starts typing in full sentences, that's when you really need an attorney. Um, if you're putting in binding language that is more than just numbers or, or addresses, um, that's when you need an attorney. Uh, you know, and again, that's in addition to reviewing any of the due diligence that we do or title uh, easements. There are a lot of restrictions on property that in the US, it's buyer beware. It's really caveat emptor. Once they've provided all the documents, it's up to the buyer to, to wade through them and understand what are they getting with this property? Are we able to use these parking spaces um, towards our square footage? Are we able to build an addition on this section of our land? And when you buy the land, you may the, the seller will tell you, sure, you can do anything you want. It's yours, <laughs> be simple. But the reality is there'll be deed restrictions. There will be zoning uh, that prohibit that. And without an attorney to review those, you're really not going to know the extent of the property that you're purchasing, at least not with some certainty. Yeah. So. yeah. No, for sure. As, especially anybody purchasing any type of commercial real estate should always have an attorney draft their PSA and review their LOI. Maybe not every LOI, but at least the uh, the language that you're sending out in that one or two pages initially before you start sending it out to deals. But um, how can listeners learn more about you and your firm, Ron? Uh, you know, I, I, I love doing YouTube. So I have my YouTube channel here. That's the best way to stay up to date. Um, otherwise, I 
you know, we'll put my website and I have an email list where I will email new videos uh, to the list before they go live on YouTube. But that's that's the best way to get a hold of me. Okay, perfect. I will put links to your YouTube channel and your website and anything else that you provide me with in the checklist in the show notes for uh, the podcast and YouTube. So thank you so much for coming on again. Awesome. Thank you, Charles. Have a great rest of your day. Hi guys, it's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at schedulecharles.com. That's schedulecharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars Incorporated exclusively.